You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Psyched by MG. This is Mary Grace Randazzo Ratliff, or MG for short. I've been a psychotherapist in private practice for 32 years now. Guess what, everyone? We all have issues. So it's time to lighten up and move forward. Let's stop letting our crap control us and take control of our crap. Good evening, everybody. Hello, hello, my co-host. Hello. How hello. are you, Barbara? Hello, Matthew. You know, there's... While the music was running, I was thinking in my head, I feel like we're the Brady Bunch, and I almost want to point over to Barbara. <laughs> and then Matthew points to Barbara, and we do that in very, like, you know, you tip the head down. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Hey, Matthew, how are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you, sweetie? Good, good. You looking well, forward to the holidays? Oh, yes. God. Yes. I'm looking forward to the future. <laughs> before we go in too far we gotta tell everybody where they can find us uh they can find psych by mg um google podcast apple podcast podcast detroit um they can find us on youtube facebook of course um instagram linkedin uh all these different areas you can find us and um we really need you to go ahead and give us a like uh, on youtube i want to give it a special plug today because we need you to subscribe uh and um we would appreciate any comments messages uh because we care about what you're going through what your thoughts are uh we want to be able to help we're here for you you're not alone we remind you of this every week uh, we want to help you to uh, not let your crap control you. Take control of your crap. Um, and uh, beautiful, my beautiful co-host and sister, Barbara, where can people find you, my love? So you can find me on Anchor as Generic African Auntie. You can find me on Google Podcast. You can find me on Apple Podcast and a whole bunch of other places. You can also find me on YouTube as Life Lessons with Coach B. So if you need a little whooping just to kind of get you in shape, come and find me over on YouTube where I share a lot of lessons that really useful, especially for young people. So if you've got young people in your life, especially young women, do send them my way, share my links with them. Um, Let's help get the next generation started right. Yes, yes, I agree. How is everybody? Barbara, how are you? Girl, I am super good. (laughs) (laughs) Ominous for a minute, right? No, I am better than I expected to be. You know how it is when you've been kind of feeling somewhat some type of way for a minute and then suddenly but I think a lot of it has to do with me a lot of it has to do with uh my own sort of mind shifting that I do I do a lot of mindset work on myself because I teach a lot about that and I I had to kind of switch my perspective on a few things um you know as you know we're now in partial lockdown again uh I was at the grocery store for four hours today because the queues, this is, I went in at nine and I came home at about one o'clock. The queues are out of control. The shelves are empty again. But you know what? 
I said to myself, well, you know, everybody's getting ready for the holidays. That's a great thing. Uh, uh, it's just hard when you're trying to find toilet paper for six people and you find two rolls, like, oh. and you're, lim- you're being told it's one per customer. So hopefully that situation will not uh, dampen our yes. festivities. Yes, yes, yes. I yeah. Hear you. Yeah. 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 Uh, how are you, Matthew? <laughs> um, you know what? Same as Barbara. I'm better than okay. I'm doing good. Um, you know, I think part of it is I'm actually, you know, I'm torn because I, I appreciate that, you know, we are taking time to stay safe and people, you know, hopefully, you know, all of us will remain safe, remain healthy. And, you know, the ones who are going through, um, you know, however directly or indirectly COVID is affecting our lives. I, you know, I just want us to stay safe. And so that's kind of where I'm ferociously protective of. Um, And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, like Barbara was saying, we're entering into the, you know, kind of new shutdown. I'm happy to do that to help all of us stay safe and, you know, to go out when we need to, um, and to do the things that, you know, hopefully we can continue our, you know, civilization and continue civility. So, um, how are you, Mary Grace? Yes, sister. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you guys are more up. (laughs) Um, I love your hair though. I have to say. Thank you. Thank you, love. Yes. Um, I'm going to need you guys probably to carry the show a little bit more tonight. Uh, my son tested positive for COVID again. Um, it took a week for the results. He did, and this is something that I really want to share with everybody. He did a quick test that came back negative. Right. I remember last week. Yeah. And the pediatrician, though, said, I don't trust these. And so she gave him the other test as well and said he must stay in quarantine. Well, thank goodness we enforced it. Um, But he tested last Friday and it was just yesterday that we got the call from the doctor. She said, I'm so sorry. You have to, because we kept calling, like, where's the test results? And she said, the labs are so backlogged at this point that it's taking, you know, instead of, two to three days, it's taking five days, it's taking seven days. So she called yesterday and uh, he's positive. And so we are in lockdown and in quarantine and, and, you know, stuck again. Um, It's scary crap. I mean, it's scary crap. How's how's he's doing better than He's doing much better this time than he did the last time. The last time he was so sick. I mean, he was fevers of almost 104 for six days. This time we didn't think my husband and my son didn't think he had it because he got a fever. He got symptomatic, but it wasn't as bad. And his Mm -hmm. symptoms cleared after three or four days. So they started to get more confident where I was still scared and saying, no, keep your mask on. Don't open the door without the mask. We'll bring you your food. Um, and I talked to the pediatrician. I said, geez, he, he hasn't had symptoms now for three or four days. Can we get him out of quarantine? And she said, absolutely not. No, he's got to stay in there. Yeah. And um, so we made him stay in there, but what I had done 
is I, we, we weren't getting the results. So I decided I'm going to go in and sanitize everything. I wore a mask, but I bleached and cleaned and wiped every surface. And in the back of my head, I thought, well, he probably doesn't have it. If he had a negative on the quick one, he's probably right. good. So I took a risk and I went in and I cleaned. I washed my hands very well. You know, everything went into trash bags. You know, all the clothes went into garbage bags and went into the laundry. We sanitized everything. And then I got all them cleaning. And the next morning we got the call saying, yeah, he's positive. You're all in quarantine and you all have to be tested. Well, testing sites are booked. I mean, it's so, some of it is people are getting together with families and they're wanting to make sure, but also the numbers are going up so much. Yeah. That the, I mean, the line today at noon, they're kind of telling you now, like if you can come around noon, that's the best time to come. All the places around here were fully booked into next week. Um, we did find a place in Westland. And I was telling Matthew, we had to give ourselves our own COVID test, which I hadn't heard of. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, you have to watch a video. I don't know if it's because that's the way they do it now or because we have COVID in the house that they don't want to put anybody at risk, but we have to watch a video and it tells you how to do the test. Um, And so that's what we did today. And then they said, look, it's going to be two to five days before you're going to hear. So it's for me, I was telling Matthew this last night. I said, you know, it's kind of like I left there. I left on Thursday after the phone call and I had six clients. And of course the stories are four out of the six are all ridden with COVID. One is a death. So I get done with that and I hear about a death and I hear about nurses that are so fried and I'm thinking to myself, I, you don't have PTSD. You have trauma. You just have trauma. And these poor people haven't been able to get fucking up from the last time that this damn thing hit. Sorry, I'm going to get emotional here. But I, I was I was enraged. I mean, just like Jesus Christ, people, please. It is not all about you. And your decisions, they have a ripple effect and they're affecting everyone around you. And I'm tired of it. I'm just freaking tired of it. So emotionally, I'm pissed off. I'm tired. I'm scared, of course, because I don't know if I have it or not, or my husband has it or not. My daughter's nervous. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty, I, I'm getting weary. I'm getting weary and I'm getting tired. And like I said, I, I hear these stories every week and I, I have zero tolerance at this point. Let some SOB come at me with how this is not real or how this and minimizing this shit. I'll lose it. I'll freaking lose it. I mean, I want to sit their asses down and say, sit down. Let me tell you what we see every goddamn week. Let me tell you what these people are going to. Let me tell you the heartache of a nurse who's so weary. She's so tired. She can't sleep. Yeah. She can't sleep. She has kids at home. And she's, but she's so, when she goes to sleep, she sees everything over and over again. And there's the story of the red boxes because they have these boxes on the doors and, and, 
when now that the numbers are all up and the floors are full again, that these poor people see these boxes, which it, Matthew, as you know, when we deal with post-traumatic stress, the red box mm-hmm. is now a trigger for this person. Mm-hmm. And so here's this weary nurse talking about the red boxes and how fucking hard it is and how she, she's got to be there because she cares about all the people she works with. She cares about the patients. But the sad thing is she can't touch or talk to them. Yeah. These people are dying and they're scared to death. They're all by themselves. God damn it. People. Damn it. Sorry. I'm just so like. Don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. So fucking done. Like, please, people, take it seriously. We're cleaning up your fucking messes, people. I'm cleaning it up. You're cleaning it up. Matthew's cleaning it up. For all those people that are out there saying this is not a big deal, not people, people don't go down. This is all made up. Oh, dear God, look out. It's not true. My God, sit in my chair. You go volunteer, go volunteer at the hospital, go on the COVID unit, last one shift. Unfortunately, they don't allow that because one of the things that I always said last year was it's so unfortunate that this thing is so insidious. You literally cannot get people onto hospital floors because some of these naysayers, all they would require is a mandatory visit. Like if you break the rules, like you walk around with no mask, just make a, just make the punishment a mandatory visit onto a COVID unit. Yes. Yes. That's it. That's all. Yes. That's all. Yes. That's all. That's all the punishment. Don't find them. Don't do anything. Just take them onto a unit. But unfortunately, because of the nature of the disease, you can't do that. And again, like I've said, did you read the story of the physician who is saying, you know, it it turned into a damn political issue. This is not a political issue. This is a health issue. Get that clear. And this doctor wrote an article that ended up on Facebook that said, you know, it's hard enough doing my job, helping these people. These people are dying. But when I walk into a room and I'm accused of malpractice because COVID isn't real and I have a woman screaming at me saying, don't put me on that vent because this is, this is all made up and you're the one that made me sick. Story after story, if you start scanning the, the social wow. media now, these nurses and doctors are writing about this delusional patient. Well, you know what? Leave her there. Don't put her on the vent then. Just leave her there. Because I'm tired too. You know, I'm done. Tired. I'm tired as well. You want to die? Go ahead. Be my guest. That's Damn, what I'm doing. Girl. I'm tired. I'm sick of it. I am too. I'm and wrong. The lack of community care is what gets me in this place. The lack of care for one another. The lack of I am because People. you are. The lack of I'm not doing this even if I don't love myself enough to want to live. Let me at least give another person the option to live long if they want to. We don't have that in this country and it's making me sick. Yeah, no, I know. It really... <sighs> These in these patients, you know, I sit there when I listen to this stuff and I I think about these poor patients who are all alone. And I think about ways in which technology could just change this for them. You know, why are we not getting their televisions zoomed into their families? Let their families be with them the whole time through the television. Why are we not doing this? And if anybody out there is, you know, at the head of a hospital, 
please message me. Like, let's talk about it because there's ways that these nurses and the, all these workers can get stress relieved from them by setting up technology in all these rooms. Because what's hard on these nurses, especially in these tech people, are these people are alone. They can't touch them. They can't talk to them. They have no time. They have no time. One nurse described to me, I have it down to just a few minutes that I'm in that room. A few minutes. Now, it goes against everything that they're, they're about. And they said, you, you don't want to be in there long because it's COVID. Yeah. And they, they can't be in there long. One, it's COVID. And two, there are other people who need their help. And that's what's made this so painful for the healthcare workers for whom this is a calling to help people. Yeah. And many of them are like, I've never felt so helpless in my life. Because yeah. as especially the ones who are on the pastoral side, like the nurses, who are there to soothe and comfort and make sure, you know, doctors are a little more clinical, but I think yeah. the nurses are there to care right? Yeah. And to nurture and, and bring healing in that way. I think they're the ones who really felt it the most because they can't, they can't hold your hand yeah. and help yeah. you transition. If you're passing on, yep. they cannot, they yeah. literally just yeah. have to let you go. You're on your own, you yeah. go, and then they body bag you That's it. and off you go. And then they have to sanitize the room and next. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I so, mean, I know, I know we're supposed to be talking, the viewers are waiting to talk about you know, the queen's gambit and I don't want to. Yeah, but you see, we have to do this because otherwise you won't get much of a show. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people know this about us. It won't be much of a show because then what happens is everything's going to be so stinted and yeah. we've got stuff yeah. that's in there that needs to be worked out. You guys will feel it. You'll sense You'll be like, what, what's wrong with them today? This not, something's off. Yeah. But because we also feel safe with you, yeah. because you do give us permission to be vulnerable. You do give us permission to be totally ourselves. Yeah. And we're so thankful for that, that we can literally come here and do our own little yep. therapy with you guys and, yep. and have yep. you guys bear witness to what we yeah. also go through. Yeah. And for that, I'm really grateful that we have yeah. an audience that's like yeah. that. Yes. Well, I think too, it's part of just modeling to the viewers and the listeners. Like, so yeah, I mean, obviously we have, you know, we have stuff, we have stuff planned and, you know, having a plan is great because then we're not planning to fail. But at the same time, there's nothing greater than, you know, like Barbara was saying to, for the three of us that we, that we, we take each other's vulnerability and we're, we're kind to it. We're gentle with it. And it creates a kind of physiological, psychological soothing. And yeah. I think that's something too, that, you know, for our listeners, that's what we want too. And we're modeling that it's okay. I mean, for the, for, you know, it's okay to think and feel, but at the same time, it's also modeling that, you know, more it's modeling a reality it's modeling that you know there's fatigue and there's you know the ability to look beyond ourselves so that ah. you know even though we're not in control of we may not be in control of changing anyone else and we're acutely aware of that but like you said step step inside our you know our van sit, drive beside us and what we're going through and what we're seeing and what we're hearing and you know it wasn't all of you know, it took every ounce of being. And for me, when, you know, where I previously worked, it was like trying to, you know, kind of, I, I saw it before it was happening. And Mary Grace, you and I have talked about that, where it's like, you know, and trying to just take action and plan so that we can land, that yeah. we can land, you know, yeah. and actually decompress and feel safe. And people looked at that as if, you know, I were crazy. And it's like, 
I'm okay. I'm fine with someone thinking I'm crazy because they are not me. They don't know. They don't know until you're experiencing it. So the feelings might be similar where it's like, and that's what creates these conglomerates of, you know, groups and everything. But until you have the experience, then like Barbara was saying, until you go into the room and if they allow that, then that's what's going to create that change. Yes. Yeah. Well, to, to transition over, I'm going to, I usually do an, an inspirational story and I saw this and, and I thought it was so good. So I actually want to read it now if everybody's okay. This is by Kitty O'Meara. Um, and it is, and the people stayed home and read books and listened and rested and exercised and made art and played games and learned new ways of being and were still and listened more deeply. Some meditative, some prayed, some danced, some met their shadows, and the people began to think differently, and the people healed. And in the absence of people living in ignorance, dangerous, mindless, and heartless ways, the earth began to heal. And when the danger passed and the people joined together again, they grieved their losses and made new choices and dreamed new images and created new ways to live and heal the earth fully as they had been healed. I thought that was, mm-hmm. I needed that one this week. That, that oh. was beautiful, beautiful kitty. You know, if she ever hears this, I want to give her kudos. Um, and, you know, talk about <laughs> torment. Barbara, did you get to watch Queen's Gambit? I watched one episode. <laughs> That's why I was like, okay, Mary Grace, before we go any further. Um, she did. She did. I take it that we're talking about uh, the addiction in there and not the chairs. Yeah. Because I don't know, chess, me and chess is like, yeah, <laughs> no. So I was like, can we clarify? Because cause if you'd said we're going to talk about chess and a broken out of the drive. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> no, no. There is no way, Matthew, and no. I would talk about chess. No. So Matthew, I'm gonna like let you 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 go. You start this off. I mean, Matthew got yeah. me to watch this. It was quite the show about, and it dealt with you know sexism, pretty powerful addiction and torment. Yeah. So so thank you. Yeah. So the Queen's Gambit. It's a seven episode miniseries on Netflix. And you know, for the listeners and out there, you know, we'll try not to do too much spoilers um, while we're talking about the stuff, but. Um, you know, the content, but essentially, you know, the, the, the actual title does have um, impress upon the listener when you're watching it. Um, it should impress upon you some meaning. So the Queen's Gambit is actually a chess move and it does involve Never chess. knew that. Um, Watch the whole yep. series. <laughs> it was, it was at the end of the series and Mary Grace is like, wait a minute, what is the Queen's Gambit? And so <laughs> then I explained it and she was like, no oh idea. my gosh, it makes so the queen's gambit and just you wait know, and really then amazing. i said to matthew how the hell do you know that <laughs> he's like oh i used to play chess and i'm like okay <laughs> so the queen's gambit is essentially it's 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 a way to temporarily sacrifice a pawn in you know the chess piece um to gain control of the center of the chess board the center of the chess game and so it's a move that typically is started you know like they and they said this in the series where like you know you're better off if the white starts um and then you know kind of having the playing the queen's gambit and so it's much more than that because it's you know when you talk about gaining control and so kind of segueing into the actual kind of content of the the actual series so it's a it's it's a it's a timepiece um it starts off in like the late 1960s you'll see the lead character um 
essentially played by Anya Taylor-Joy, but her name is Beth Harmon in the series. And it starts off with her kind of trying to, racing to get dressed and kind of making her way what you'll later find out to kind of a major kind of chess championship. But in the midst of it, you're seeing her drinking from the minibar. You're seeing her trying to kind of stumble over her shoes, her clothes, getting dressed. Um, But then it jumps back and it takes you about a decade or so, a decade back where it actually follows her, Beth Harmon, as a child prodigy, um, you know, and and kind of gifted, if you will, um, with the kind of chess. And she suffers a major loss. And so I won't give too much away, but she suffers a major loss, which leads her to going into a Kentucky orphanage. Um, And so as she's, so already we're talking about, you know, kind of the alienation of culture. Um, You know, we're talking about, you know, kind of the separation from, you know, your kinship, if you will. And so she's trying to survive in this orphanage and, you know, the goal of possibly being orphaned out to a family. And she meets her friend Jolene there, um, which is a prominent uh, character and, you know, kind of a figure in the, in the series. But she ends up um, finding that they are feeding the girls um, at this orphanage, these tranquilizers. And so you'll see this huge, large glass jar. um, And so it, it might feel and look awkward, but they're feeding them tranquilizers where Beth ends up finding another escape. Wow. And so she suffers this major loss, this major trauma. She gets removed and kind of, you know, stripped from her family, um, kind of biological family, um, a nuclear family in those terms um, in that time period. And so she's kind of under the spell of this kind of need for acceptance. She's under this spell to kind of find herself. Um, and she quickly recognizes the differences between women, the girls and the boys and the women and the men. Um, and so she finds solace in once she takes the tranquilizer, she starts to actually see kind of for herself. Um, that's when the chess um, kind of uh, prodigious nature starts with her. And so from there, she ends up one kind of just one day that she gets sent down to the basement in this orphanage and she meets this custodian. His character is Mr. Shable in the um, series. And so she meets him and they immediately start, you know, kind of learning about, um, you know, chess. He's trying to work with her, but you can see it unfold over time where he's providing this connection piece to her. Um, and you can also recognize, which I'm sure we'll talk about, how even with connections, addiction can still be so strong that that you know they're most they're sometimes mutually exclusive, and connections aren't the only thing that can eradicate addiction. Um, and then the sexism too later comes about when she finally makes it out of the orphanage. She is adopted, and she's adopted into a family where. Her adoptive mother is also under the the spell of alcohol and taking the same tranquilizers that she took in the orphanage, um, which Hannah ends up taking some of her adoptive um, mother's um, medication at that time, what it's referred to as. So she goes through these um, kind of own journeys, if you will, by attending these chess matches. Um, So using this kind of 
her prowess, if you will, to gain notice, to gain connection. Um, and it takes her through her teenage years into kind of a young adulthood um, where she is um, essentially, if you think about it, it's kind of like a coming of age, kind of like boxing, like kind of Hollywood boxing movie where it's like, she's really, um, she's very adept. She is very focused. She, but she still relies on that addiction and that, um, you know, the, the need and that dependency for, um, the, you know, the chemical of that tranquilizer so that she can see things more clearly for her. Um, and so you see her kind of go through periods where she's restrained, where sometimes she kind of spins out a little bit, um, in her character. Um, and it takes you through, she goes through the chess hierarchy where she's faced with sexism. She tries to attend her chess match and they tell her that she can't um, because, you know, she's a female and she doesn't have any experience. So there's the hierarchy of that. Um, and she, all the while, she's on this steady diet of alcohol and downers. Um, so I don't know, Mary, did I summarize it pretty? You, you summarized it so well. And she, she's, it's it's the trauma you can see from the very beginning her the death that she experiences and i think it's okay to say who died because it's mm-hmm. evident but the mom yeah. you know takes her own life in the beginning and mm-hmm. she that trauma um was bad enough but before the mom even died mm-hmm. she was so mentally ill and mm-hmm. her mental illness, you just, when I was watching her as a little girl, she just kept observing everything. Mm-hmm. She observed and she observed and she observed. And of course, as a therapist, you think, oh, the detachment is forming. You know, she, mm-hmm. she looks, uh, she always is standing outside looking in at something. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the drugs that they gave these kids, and I think that that part was true, that in the you know mid-60s, um, they would give children, and at the time, wasn't she like nine or ten? Yeah. They, they were just, hand, they gave all the little kids in orphanages these tranquilizers. And then um, a major change happened, and they were not allowed to do it anymore. But they didn't do a deep, they did, didn't know about detox back then. So these poor kids went through these major detox episodes. And so, but her detachment, the drugs, the alcoholism fed this detachment in her. And yet, like Matthew saying, she has a special gift. And um, the custodian, I was kind of wishing that you would see her like bond with that custodian or bond more with Jolene because mm-hmm. Jolene became her best friend and the person mm-hmm. in her life that looked out for her and cared about her. Um, but you, you see her just stay in this detached place, which addiction feeds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I've got a question. I'm going to play devil's advocate. Yes. So I'm listening and I watched some of it. Now I only watched one episode. Okay. Um, but I'm so hooked in. I'm just so hectic busy, but I, I know that this is something over the holidays that I must watch and finish because I, I love the different uh, strings or, 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 or 
threads that are in it. Yeah. yeah so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. So here's this young lady. Okay. So in order to deal with her trauma, she doesn't know it at the time that they're giving it to her to deal with the trauma. I bet you the people were giving these kids drugs is for their own benefit. You know what? Tranquilize them, shut them up. They become yeah, zombies. Make them they're not going to bother you. They're not going to complain. They just become mm-hmm. zombies, right? No. Good. Mm-hmm. Then she grows up. So she's already an addict at about nine yeah. or whatever age they start giving them. Yeah. So it's not just an addiction. It's not a psychological addiction only, but there's that physiological aspect of it. Okay, yeah. so fine. She moves on and she's now taking drugs. But here's the thing. She's a functional addict, mm-hmm. right? Um, my thing is, and, and I'm playing devil's advocate. I need to do this because I know that there are addicts. I've come across addicts who do this, who justify their addiction in this manner. She's a functional addict whose addiction, based on what we know, is what has heightened or brought forth this powerful gift that has catapulted her to success, given the fact that she's a woman, given the fact that she's so young, right? So, as devil's advocate, I'd say, well, if it didn't end bad, what's wrong with it? Yeah, and and I want to jump in right here because I was reading about them stating that this drug helped her with her focus. Mm. But if you look at the drug that she was on, which, like Matthew said, is a downer, the downer, I don't necessarily think it helps with your focus. I think it keeps you more still and sleepy and out of it. Um, and so I, I want to say to people who says, Hey, well, drugs help. And I say, you know, it might help you in certain time periods for a short amount of time, but it then gets more real. And that is when addiction takes hold and addiction is, it's a disease of rationalizations and you will rationalize taking the drug that it's effective. It does this for you. It saves you. It doesn't hurt you. All these, these reasons in your head, which are not true. We have plenty of evidence that will prove to you. We could take a look at each drug. And when you get to the point of addiction, you will not be thinking clearly. You will form into narcissism because at the core of addiction is narcissism because it's your relationship with the drug. And that's, what's important. Everyone else you can lie to, you can manipulate, you will not connect with, you will stay detached. That's what drug addiction does. It will lead there. And there are three phases to addiction. Early phases, yeah, you're functioning. You can function, but you start to have episodes. So if it's, a, if it's drinking, for example, you fight with your partners or your, your fighting gets escalated because when you start to drink, it starts to deaden the brain. And so you, you don't have filters on your brain that would stop you from getting aggressive or getting mad. The- was this shown in the other episodes? Like what was her end point? Like when they finished with this series, how did it all end? Well, so that- so that's sorry, actually, I know. So, no, 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 that's asking okay. is- Sorry yeah. to interrupt you. The reason I'm asking is because I want to follow your train of thought and what you're saying, which is what I've experienced with people who are suffering from addiction, which is that it, it doesn't invariably 
hopefully it does not end well. Yeah. So I wanted to see how they frame that in the movie. How does how what's the trajectory in there? Without so, giving too much away. So it doesn't end well. And and the doesn't end well is in kind of quotes because I think it's subjective to each person's experience in their own addiction and in their own trajectory. Um, but it does take you. So your question is amazing and great because, and then what Mary Grace, what you're saying too, because in the series, it does lead up to where she has a period where she does of abstinence, which is part of, you know, what we talk about in treatment and therapy and what people, you know, listeners who have had experience with that will know and have heard of that, like that language, but it leads up to an apex where here is this, this girl, this, who's now a woman who is, you know, gifted and who has essentially sought refuge, if you will, for those, for those people. And for, you know, when, where addiction has kind of taken hold um, on much more extreme ends where, you know, you've suffered, you know, abuse or trauma, um, you know, it's a place to seek refuge at times. And that disease of rationalization um, keeps it going um, instead of kind of believing that there might be this, you know, there might be help or there might be some type of intervention. And it's for her, it was predictable. She felt safe and she felt in control. And the actual kind of, I would say the antithesis, the opposite of that is she ended up reaching a level of out of control where she recognized that she essentially lost a game because Mm -hmm. of the addiction, because that she couldn't contain, she couldn't manage and it became unmanageable up until the very kind of second and the very minutes leading up to the major kind of match before the very, very end where she kind of regained control and it showed that it did end more favorably. Um, Mm -hmm. But there was some enlightenment um, in that. So and, and if we were to diagnose her, she'd be a dual diagnostic case because she has serious trauma issues. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was hard to tell. Like she, she seeked to be numb to her trauma. She seeked to be, have calmness and stillness because when she wasn't on the medication and the trauma needed to speak in her body, she didn't have anybody. She didn't have anybody to talk to. She didn't have anybody who consoled her except her friend, Jolene, who did the best she could because she was a kid too. So she, she, and this is the, the situation with a lot of people with addiction. They have you know, some of them have significant trauma. And so the addiction happens in order to calm that body, to soothe that body, to numb them out, to detach them enough so that they don't feel the discomfort of trauma. And then they don't learn how to cope with it, how to grieve, how to work through it so that you don't need a drug to soothe you. You don't need a drug to make you social. You don't need a drug, you know, to get you to not be mad all the time. Um, She was somebody who was a dual diagnostic person and she fought this detachment in its detachment from the self, detachment from others, the the drugs and the alcohol fed it. Um, the the one point in the movie where she gets adopted 
and she meets this mother. And, and it was the one time in the movie, I thought, oh my God, you know, they're still drinking and they're drugging together. Um, and they really cared about each other. And you just, you know, I was just wishing, please let them bond a little bit more because they, they really did care about one another. Um, but they couldn't do a healthy connection because of the drugs and the alcohol. And it, it numbs you out to the point where you don't have access to your instincts and your emotions, which tell you to watch out the dangerous happening, protect yourself, warning, pay attention. You're going to miss something. You're going to make a mistake. I mean, your instincts and your emotions guide you to see all those things. But when you're drugging and you're drinking and you're in a dissociative place, which she was in, and that's that attachment, um, you don't have access to all that. So you, you get, you go from one crisis to another. She misses that chess game, this big, the, she's going to play the Russian. It's the opening scene and she misses it. And then you throw into the, to the series the sexism of especially the fifties and the sixties and before, but this was placed in the sixties and it it was special to me because I was born 1963. Don't add that up people. Um, (laughs) I just said it. (laughs) Um, But the, the discrimination and the feminist movement was going on then. And it was a time of women really connecting with and fighting for equal rights and to be treated equally. So then you see her go, you know, especially to the first chess match and they didn't let women play men. What do you mean? You imagine what that must've been like, right? You've got, you've got a body full of trauma and pain and dis-ease as I call it dis-ease. And you've also got in your mind the stress of knowing the space in which you're having to function and occupy. Also knowing that you have to work twice as hard as the other people in there because they're male and you're female. Knowing and getting the looks, because the the episode I watched was like, I was like, oof. Yeah, I mean, the way she was treated essentially as a woman and the, 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 the sort of almost, it was almost intentional moves to discredit her talent and her gift. Yeah. I I, I kept thinking, add that to the mind. So now you've got the body diseased. You've got the mind and the stress. Yeah, I can see how this drug is a perfect, it's like like she was the perfect storm to continue with the drug habit. And the thing is, you know, I've got to say this. I've met a lot of creatives, like genius type people who end up being addicts and yeah. it starts out in that manner. That's why I asked that question immediately. I know people who are off the chain writers. I'm in the writing community yeah. who have to have their little smoke, who have to have their, their little alcohol. Matter of fact, in our African writing community a few years ago, um, there were so many men there who were alcoholics, functional, who wrote the most, br- you know, the stuff that makes you sit and go, oh, brilliant. But they were all drinking the entire time. They'd wake up in the morning to drink. I went to writers' workshops with them. Wake up in the morning at breakfast, they're drinking. By 11 o'clock, they're out, but they're working. Yeah. And so that's why I asked that question, like, at what point now do we say? But guess what's happened? Again, that trajectory where you watch people 
only a few got ever got published. So the brilliance is there. But that drug, that alcohol, then prevents further follow-up. So you're in your flow, you've, you're this genius type person, but what about those times you need to be fully sober and in your head well, so that you can get your manuscript together, so you can take your manuscript to the publisher, so that you can get a, a, a good contract for yourself and sign, so that you show up at readings instead of sleeping in a hotel room where you're supposed to be presenting at a conference and miss your entire session and they yeah. show up the next day and say, oh, yeah, where's... <laughs> it there's happens. The other time. There's... Happening to yeah. People. There's... We call it the stinky thinking. There's the brain that is addicted. And, you know, for anybody that is like that, that is listening, you know, to understand, there's three parts to the brain. And... The lower part of the brain is your filters. So when you drink, you're, you're deadening those filters that keep you from like, say you don't like your embarrassed dance. Well, you get a few cocktails in you and you can drink, you can dance. Um, or, you know, you're t- kind of shy, but you get a free, few drinks in you and you can talk. Well, it numbs those filters. And so you, you have less inhibitions. And if you, so you, you, if you keep drinking, now you're going to move into, into numbing out the second part of the brain. And that's where the physical is. So the physical, this is when you keep drinking and all of a sudden you're dropping your drinks or you're leaning to one side and you're, you're stumbling a bit. Um, You go, if you keep drinking and you go to numb the third part of the brain, you're going to be out. You're going to be out. And the scary part of that is if you, nothing is functioning. And so if you need to throw up and you've heard about this, you know, when mm, you yeah. because you, you, you need to puke, but you can't do the movement to get it out. And so you, you drown basically. That's when you drink so much, you've got that upper part of the brain numb as well. So there's those three parts of the brain. When I hear about these writers And I say, oh, you're trying to access that passion. You're trying to access. So you're doing this game where you're numbing. But what you don't realize is there's so many ramifications for doing that. It, it, It literally, it makes your life implode. You can, you can access that emotion and get more comfortable with it and not so afraid of it. By working with somebody, by working with a therapist, by reading about it. I mean, here's yeah, meditation. I mean, I've always said, I want to. Do you want to get high? You're sit and meditate, right? Sit and meditate. I'm telling you, that's like the best high ever. Yeah, it's like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm saying they are positive ways. I know what people are trying to create in their bodies, especially creatives. I know it because I'm a creative. But they are ways that you can do that without harming that precious thing called your mind and your body because on top of what we're talking about what happens in the immediate you numb this part of your brain you numb that part are also the long-term effects cirrhosis of the liver say you know say you're, you're you're on alcohol you get liver problems too with a lot of pills that people are popping people have had psychotic breaks by taking certain uh, hallucinogens and so on and so forth, where you have a psychotic break and now you're really mentally ill and that's that, yeah. right? Because it takes you to the edge of somewhere. And, and most people, 
because of, you know, a lot of the addictive substances are such that after a while, you need to keep increasing the dose. So you're pushing the envelopes the whole time until you get to a point where then you, you know, you're not, you're not on the razor's edge anymore. You've been sliced down by that razor. And that's that. You now split into two and you've got schizophrenia. You've got all kinds of things. And now we've, now we're lost, you're lost to us. And that genius that you had is all gone too. The mind is such a, such a fascinating, powerful, but also very scary place. And, and, and I wanted to talk about this aspect of drug abuse because it's very often overlooked. Yeah. There are many people who are functional addicts. Yeah. And when they hear us talk about, you know, people slurring their words and falling over and stuff, they're so quick to say, ah, but that's not me. Ah, but that's not me. You know, it's, it's, it, that's why I like this kind of conversation because it pulls in everybody who is, what I would say, using a drug to alter your senses and your perception when in a manner that gives you a a result, whether that be escape or numbing yourself from your pain, whether that be, you know, opening up your creativity, as you say, hey, I say, come and join my spiritual group. Go open your third eye just like that. You won't need drugs to do that. There are ways in which you can access higher aspects of yourself in which you can access other dimensions if you're so inclined without necessarily having to put into your body and into your mind chemicals that will harm you. Mm-hmm. There's, there's three stages to addiction and there's three outcomes to addiction. The three outcomes are sobriety, insanity, and death. Um, and then... People often will think about addiction in the third phase. And so especially you'll hear this with an alcoholic or an addict. Well, I still go to work, so I'm not an addict. I still, you know, I still function. I don't miss work. I make a paycheck. I go to my kids' games. And what you don't understand is there's phase one, phase two, but that's phase three. If you are, if you can't get up and you can't go to work, and if you're just detached from the family, that in that phase, that your prognosis is good. Right. We want to hit addiction in the first and the second phase. And if if people are saying you use too much, this is a problem, or you're or you miss work, or you you get a DUI, or you get, you know, you find that you know you're taking prescriptions that aren't yours. These, this is addiction. It doesn't have to be phase three, but it could be phase one or phase two. Exactly. And the longer you stay in it, you will get the disease of rationalizations where you will rationalize everything to keep you using whatever you're using. And you're sick at that point. If that is happening, I tell this story of a man that I had years ago who he had like 14 DUIs. And I, I looked at her, I said, do you think you're an alcoholic? He said, no, I've got bad luck. I think the cops are after me. <laughs> and I just started to chuckle. <laughs> I started to chuckle because I thought, dude, your disease of rationalizations are to the point of psychosis. Like you lose touch with reality. You will rationalize so much that you won't be in reality anymore. And so it, it's, 
it's a tough thing. If anybody out there that's listening as we're talking about this thinks that they struggle with any form of addiction, you know, message us, um, get a hold of, you know, there's the AA community, there's NA, the, you can Google it, um, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, they have um, 24-7 hotlines, they have meetings all the time, you can call someone and just talk it out and ask questions, you can contact a substance abuse clinic, um, they have them all over, um, and just talk to somebody. Just take the step to make a call and talk to somebody because the outcome again to addiction is death, insanity, or sobriety, period. And the longer you're in it, the worse it will get. Um, I want to just real quick, I want to touch a little bit more too on the sexism piece. So here's this woman who's been in trauma, who's addicted, who's detached, and dealing with sexism, which objectifies you as a woman. It makes you an object. You are not a part. And the, you missed this, Barbara. And I, I think it was at the end with the Russian when she was beating him in the game, Matthew. And she did she walk by the room and she saw them strategizing on how to beat her? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wondered if they were cheating. <laughs> Maybe not, but it seemed like they were, the, their masculinity was based on beating this woman mm-hmm. who was so brilliant. And she was so scared when it, there was some part in which she said, the scariest person I play or I'm going to play is the Russian. She was scared to death. She didn't win the first time. It was the first scene because she drank mm-hmm. and wasted. She didn't function and she didn't show up on time. And he dominated her intellectually. But I think looking at that issue through a chess match and then at the, uh, oh, can we say the end, Matthew? Probably not. <laughs> Dang. But I do want people to watch because yeah. – yeah. I thought I thought the last episode was so poignant that mm-hmm. um, we shouldn't describe it. Like it was. Well, that'll definitely get people to watch. It's gonna get me to watch now because I'm like, say it, spit it out. Finish, you yeah. You gotta finish finish the rest of the episode, and we can even touch base on that the next time, like at the beginning, and kind of touch base on it. But yeah, I mean, she has weekend, she had the. The, like the, I think the adjacent kind of nature of the addiction, where like on her, it manifested into this. She was she played super aggressively, um, and she, you know, it, she had, and it started with, and this is also too for people to understand. It started with her as a young girl, and I think over the the series, I at least as I understood it, that she had obsessive like obsessiveness. She had. Mm-hmm thoughts of obsessions, maybe kind of pro in a, clinically, we might not even, you know, we would think obsessive compulsive disorder, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't diagnostic at the age that she was until mm-hmm. much, you know, as it kind of evolved over, you know, the, the years. And I think part of it is her, her success coupled with anger with, mm-hmm. you know, her style of play and also just her style of, how she played her life with 
the interaction with men and the kind of sexism that she encountered too is important. Um, it just, yeah, I mean, it definitely, it takes you through the, um, up until the very end. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. Some people, some people, you know, some people's reactions where they were left wanting more. I didn't feel like I needed more. I felt like it, I, for me, I felt like it took, took you through like all the stages that you needed to be taken through. And, you know, there, like you said, Mary Grace at the beginning with maybe more with the, um, more connection with the, the, um, custodial, uh, gentleman, but yeah. to kind of un- unfold a little bit more of, you know, that relationship. But I think, I think it was, it was a good depiction. I think it was, you know. Yeah. And for, you know, Barbara, I, I do want you to see it because for young women out there, um, you know, sexism is not over, <laughs> obviously. Oh, um, <laughs> is not over. Um, you know, it's so important to know your value and to have your group support you and your pack. Um, mm-hmm. That can, because we can't always be strong twenty four seven. We can't always be in that powerful place. We can't always, you know, be these fighters and have, you know, great esteem. Um, It's normal to have times that you fall down and you feel weak and you question yourself and you doubt yourself. And that's when your sisterhood is important. Absolutely. That, you know, I, being a product of the 60s, you know, throughout all this time with Trump, I kept saying, where is Gloria Steinem? Where is she? Where are all the feminists that I grew up with? Why am I not hearing them reach to the younger generation again? And maybe they have, and I didn't see it on social media. Oh, honey, no. I've been, um, I'm, you know, I'm all up in there. I'm all, mm-hmm. Oh, I, it was just heartbreaking because they were these powerful and you see they've got their own issues you see and that's what i always say about uh women needing to be careful of us being fragmented because within that movement now there was a clear dichotomy there were the black feminists on one side and the white feminists on the other and so already the trump thing happened when we were ill at ease with one another amongst ourselves. We had already started the schisms because of lack of intersectionality and understanding intersectionality. And, you know, Black women, again, feeling like we're always there coming to save y'all. And then you usurp us by taking the glory and not even thanking us by actually supporting us in what we want to do. Yes. And that in, uh, the, 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 the privilege gets in the way sometimes too and not understanding intersectionality. It's like the example I used to give you of people saying, well, if he beats you, call the police. And it's like, uh, 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 not quite that simple. Do you see what I mean? So already Trump came and we were fragmented already. And so when that kind of happens, it's like people go further into their silos. Yes. Because then you don't know who you trust. Like, is this an ally? Is this a real authentic ally? Well, if they can't be an ally in this issue, how do we know they're not an ally? Well, in the past, they voted on race issues with white men. So it, it just gets messy. Yeah. So you're absolutely correct. Their voices I searched for and I didn't hear uh, in the movement. It, just, it, it was so heartbreaking. And But I got accustomed to not hearing those voices representing women like me. So in the end, it was like, you know yep. what I mean? Yeah. The voices that I did hear were of women who were like me, looked like me. Because guess what? Black Lives Matter. 
they were at the forefront. Mm-hmm. So again, it just, to be honest, this whole mess just really, really ripped us apart. I know. It just, it just, it just yeah. widened the rift. And that's my, I guess my point being that if we're ever going to beat outside forces as a sisterhood, got to get strong within. Yes. Got to iron out our issues. We got to work this stuff out. Even if we fight and kick and buck and scream, as long as we know that at the end of the day, we are cohesive. Because if we're not strong like that, when the tempest comes, it just breaks everything apart. And I think you hit such an important point and to speak to white women and how to do this um, is you you really have to listen. You you have to shut up and listen. Um, all of us, all cultures, black women, white women, Indian women, all cultures, we have to get integrated. We have to join each other. We have to talk to one. We as white women, and I, I call myself an Italian woman, but I would be put in the white category. We have to ask how, teach us how, what do we need to learn? Show us what we need to do. Show us what we need to learn so that we can change this. And we also have to know, we have to earn the trust. We have to but you see, more important than that, see, we, we, we've been through that. That was like 10, 10, five, 10 years ago. We've, we got that one right, which is also, yes, show us, how can we show up? It's not teach us. No, it's go and educate yourself because it's all there. No, but we're beyond being humble enough because white women can go into a group with black women and take control. Telling them what to do and how to do it. And I'm saying to these women, shut up. (laughs) Humble up. (laughs) Be quiet. Listen. Join, be sensitive. Don't just go into that group. Don't dominate. Don't be a know-it-all. You know, it, it is, that's the problem with any form of discrimination. There's somebody that thinks they should be here and everyone else should be here. And I don't want us to get cut off, but we're almost at the end. Do you have final thoughts, Mary Grace? Oh, so sorry. Oh, this is a whole show. <laughs> that's a whole show, right? Barbara. <laughs> That could be the next one. This is like a whole, you know, where we get sisters in here listening and, 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 and. Well, maybe we can do that and talk about the 45% versus 55. I mean, we still got to hash that out because, you know, sisters, we got to have a conversation about what had happened over there. Okay. But final thoughts on this one, though. Final. (laughs) So many other conversations. (laughs) Well, I think, no, well, yeah, no sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to like, but I just wanted us to bring us together before we get cut off. But I think, you know, for people out there listening, we're just, we all need refuge. We all need safety. We yes. all need security. And I think part of it is the segue. And I would love for you and Barbara to continue this next week. But, you know, specifically with tonight, go, go home, stay home, you know, go home, watch Queen's Gambit, continue watching it. Have these difficult decisions, d- difficult discussions, which might lead to some difficult decisions. But mm-hmm. I think part of it is, and like you said, Mary Grace, at the top of the hour, is that you're not alone. And we yeah. say that every week. You're not alone. <laughs> the refuge is there. And if you need help, help is there, too. We, and, and part of it is, for all the listeners, too, start making people recognize and think 
critical consciousness, think about how to make people feel safe and loved and wanted and needed. And I think that, and I think that will, you know, that hits the nail on the head. Yeah. Precisely. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I love you, women. Everybody, you can find us. You know where you can find us: you know, Facebook, Instagram. You know, look up Psyched by MG. We want your thoughts, your likes, your subscribes. We really would appreciate it. We need it. Um, and if again you need any help, of course, message me on uh, Psyched by MG. Um, you can go to my website, Psyched by MG. Um, and thanks for hanging in with us. Um, slow start, sorry about that, but we got there. Um, and have a, a wonderful, you know, week. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Stay everyone. Safe. Happy Love Thanksgiving, you guys. guys. Happy everybody Thanksgiving. Are here. Bye. Bye.